If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Vacation alert from the three-row Jeep Grand Cherokee L. Mama and Papa want to go hiking. Los abuelos want to relax at the beach. And the kids want to go to the amusement park. With seating for up to seven, you and your loved ones can enjoy all these adventures and more. Jeep, there's only one. Visit jeep.com to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Hola. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I was listening to ABC Radio, and an historian like you used those words, said, da-da-da-da-da-da, when Australia invaded Gallipoli, invaded Turkey. And I just about ran off the road. I was like, what? Invaded? Such an ugly word. That was Peter Fitzsimons offering an Australian perspective on the Battle of Gallipoli. What might be utterly taboo and unacceptable in normal times, and which is unimaginable to us, uh, might become almost normal or accepted uh, in times of extreme famine. And that was Cormac O'Grada talking about the possibility of cannibalism in periods of famine. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our third podcast of April 2015. 
I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This month, we've reached the centenary of the Battle of Gallipoli, the Allied campaign to defeat the Ottoman Empire that ended in disastrous failure. But although the campaign was not a success, its memory remains cherished, especially in Australia and New Zealand, for whom Gallipoli represented a baptism of fire. Australian journalist and author Peter Fitzsimons has just written a book about the Gallipoli campaign, and I interviewed him not long ago to get his perspective on the events of 1915. I began by asking him why he felt Gallipoli has come to matter more to Australia than Britain, even though both countries were active participants. My conclusion on that, I, I I basically do a book a year, and about three years ago I finished a book on Douglas Mawson, which included Scott of the Antarctic and Roald Amundsen, the first man to get to the South Pole, and the great Shackleton. And when I was doing it, I flew from England, flew from Oxford where all of uh, Scott of the Antarctic's papers are, and I went to Norway. And when I went to the, the Amundsen Museum, I was fascinated how big it is, how important it is in the history of Norway. Why is it? Because Norway didn't become Norway until 1905 and the first time they had accomplished anything as a nation where the world went, well, Norway did that, was the South Pole. So that was the moment they felt they beat their chest and said, yeah, we're a serious nation, we got to the South Pole first. They revere it to this day. In Australia, there was a tragic notion that we're not, even though in 1901 we became a federation, you know, all the colonies came together to become a country, there was a view extant at the time which was you're not a serious nation, you can't be a real nation until you have shed blood, both your own and that of your enemies, then you're a real nation. And as you'll see in the book, there's a poem by our great revered poet, Banjo Patterson. When the news came through of the Gallipoli landing, the, the poem he wrote was, we're all Australians now. And the notion was, the old state jealousies of yore are dead as Pharaoh's sow. The metal that a nation shows is proved with shot and steel. And now we know what nations know and feel what nations feel. So there in that poem, you've got the, the exultation in Australia. Our boys have fought for the British Empire and they've done well. And there's a pretty strong argument, which I I have come to believe in, that while Australians went away to that war as loyal sons of Great Britain, they came back as Australians. There's been a line, almost a cliche in Australian history, that our diggers were, the, the famous phrase is, lions led by donkeys. And we were the lions, <laughs> your British generals were the donkeys. Now, a lot of people have asked me, you know, is that fair and should we be angry at the British generals? My short answer is yes, but so too should be the British soldiers because if you look at what happened at Cape Hellas and you look at the whole Dardanelles campaign, certainly New Zealand lost 2,000 men killed, Australia lost 9,000 men killed, but but the Brits, you Brits lost 35,000 killed, you know, and and so much of it was... 19th century thinking, military thinking, going up against 20th century killing machines. And so at the Battle of First Battle of Krithia and more particularly the Second Battle of Krithia, your guy Hunter Weston sending men over open fields beneath shrapnel into machine guns on a bright sunny day, they were never going to be anything else but slaughtered. And I've, I've just come back yesterday from the Western Front, so I've flown in from Paris this morning, but yesterday I was tramping around from Mel and Pozier for my next book where Australians of the 5th Division, side by side with Brits of the 61st Division, 
in open sunlight at 6 p.m. on the evening of the 19th of uh, July, but still bright sunlight, came out of the trenches straight into German machine guns and they were slaughtered. Australia lost, well, 5,533 casualties in 12 hours. The Brits lost about, I think it was 1,600. It was insane. It was absolutely insane. And I've tried to capture the insanity of it. So is, is that why you think Gallipoli really failed? It was just, the, was it the tactics that were wrong or, or was it the whole idea wrong? I'm a tad reluctant on such, on such a strong question, but I'll just say this. I mean, I thought Churchill's idea of sending the Imperial Fleet, so the essence of what was happening on the Western Front, Great Britain was chewing through 3,500 men a week on the Western Front, just madness. And on the 13th of June 1915, at the meeting of the War Council at 10 Downing Street, the meeting goes for eight hours and they're just going through the numbers, crunching the numbers, and just everybody's depressed, at which point Winston Churchill, who, who's running the Imperial Fleet, unveils his idea, we'll send the Imperial Fleet up the Dardanelles, we'll wave the Union Jack, they'll surrender. If they don't surrender, we'll lob a few shells into Constantinople and then they'll surrender. And the room came alive because, you know, you've got the Imperial Fleet, which basically hadn't had a loss in 100 years, going up against the Islamic world, which basically hadn't had a serious win. They'd had one or two wins, but hadn't had a serious win in 100 years. The actual idea is not a bad idea, but the execution of it was terrible. And so what then happens, of course, is... Winston Churchill can't restrain himself, gives them a whiff of the grape. I think it was the 3rd of February, I haven't got the book before me, at which point, you know, sends in a few shells into the Turkish forts, at which point they realise we need help, we need bigger guns, we need more ammunition, we need German engineering, we need more men. They got all of those. So by the time the Imperial Fleet came back on the 19th of March, they lost four ships. The French lost one ship, the Brits lose three ships. And while in Australia we commemorate Anzac Day, in Turkey they celebrate Kanakali Day, the day they beat the, the Imperial Fleet. So when Great Britain was humiliated to that extent, then what are we going to do? We've got to, we've got to send a land force in to take out the forts. And so 150,000 men are landed, most of which were landed at Cape Hellas. The Anzac landing was more of a distraction, a feint more than anything else. And the idea was that Great Britain would push up the peninsula, neutralise the forts, at which point the Imperial fleet could go through. And, of course, it never happened. The men were slaughtered at Cape Hellas. They were more or less slaughtered at Anzac Cove. It was so bad. The whole thing was so bad that 18 hours after the landing, there was a serious question about whether the mighty Great Britain, the British Empire, should just pull out and say, this is a disaster, we've got to get out here. And it was only... It was only a touch-and-go decision whether or not they'd stay. They stayed. Australia at that point had had 2,000 casualties, 1,000 men killed, and at that point, at the end of the first day, Australia controlled, or the Anzacs, Australia and New Zealand, controlled 400 acres of Turkish soil. Eight months later, with 9,000 dead, we controlled, dot three, carry one, subtract two, 400 acres. We hadn't moved a jot. You know, in fact, as I mentioned, I was yesterday in the doing it with the Western Front and the subject came up of the Battle of Verdun, you know, and you had hundreds of thousands of men lost. And at the end of eight months, the, the actual line hadn't moved backwards or forwards more than a few yards. I mean, the whole that whole First World War was carnage on a scale the world had never seen before. So do you get an impression of why the Anzac troops volunteered in many cases to fight this war so many thousands of miles away when there was a good chance they'd get killed? There were many reasons. The romantic reason is to fight for Great Britain, and that was that was certainly true of many of them. The uh, Australian Prime Minister at the time, or the man that became a Prime Minister shortly after the war began, Andrew Fisher, 
He said, he publicly proclaimed to great acclaim, we will fight for Great Britain to the last man and the last shilling. And there were lots of patriots and they weren't, you know, really, if you look at the the accounts, it is we're doing something for the British Empire. We're doing something for the mother country. The mother country has called on her on her on her tiger cubs to come to her aid. Well, lion cubs probably more to the point for the great British lion. That's what we're doing. And yet others joined for adventure, and still others joined. And this was not an insignificant reason. Six shillings a day, mate. It wasn't bad pay. I mean, the British soldier was getting paid one shilling a day. The Australian soldier was the highest paid soldier there. You might you may note in my account one of the parts that I loved is the the Australians go absolutely crazy in the red light district in Cairo, and our Australian soldiers were very well known in Cairo because all of the ladies of the night wanted an Australian soldier because they had six shillings in their pocket every day. So they were the first first ones. And a lot of them, very tragic, got VD and were sent home in disgrace. I don't think I put it in the book, but basically a dishonourable discharge for having dishonourable discharges. And when they were sent to the Dardanelles, there was the Battle of the Wazza, which took place on Good Friday, I think it was April 1st or April 2nd, and they burnt down several brothels before they went. I mean, they were our blokes were, were, were fairly wild men, and yet that experience of fighting side by side inculcated in them a great sense of Australianness, and it sounds like romantic claptrap, but the diaries show it, the letters show it, that when they hit the shores of Gallipoli, they shouted out, come on, Australia, come on, Australia. In the Second Battle of Crithia on the 8th of May, Colonel McKay stood on the parapet and he said, which of you are Australians? Come on, Australia. They roared forth, shouting, come on, Australia. And so there was this growing sense of Australianness. And whatever resentment that our our blokes felt towards the British generals also increased that Australianness. And after Gallipoli, there was a strong sense they'd done so well that among our blokes, our blokes felt we've done so well and we're now numerous enough, we want to have an army of our own under Australian or at least Australasian leadership. The British War Office wouldn't even consider it. They didn't even pass on the request, didn't even notify the Australian government of it. They just said, no, we're not going to do that. It's going to remain under, under British leadership. And so it did. Were the Anzac troops surprised at quite how bloody the fighting was and quite how bad the conditions were when they got there? Well, certainly, you know, it was hell on earth, particularly if you're up at Quinn's Post and you had the you had the Turkish trenches, you know, no more than 10 yards away on a bad day. And you had the Battle of the Neck where you had Australian soldiers charging across open ground with no bullets in their, in their rifles, charging about 50 yards across open ground into open machine guns. It was shocking and the artillery was bad. And yet the veterans of Gallipoli that then went on to the Western Front, again, I'm, I'm across this because I'm writing it now, all of them said, look, you know, we thought Gallipoli was bad, but you get to the Western Front, you get to Pozier, we didn't know anything. I mean, the and your man, General Haig, he said to General Birdwood, who was the Englishman who was the general in front of, in charge of the Australians, he said, look, you know, we're fighting Germans now, we're not fighting, we're not fighting. He used a curious expression, which I'll think of, but basically it was the equivalent of you're not you're not fighting fuzzy wuzzy savages now, you're fighting you're fighting against Germans on the Western Front. And he was quite dismissive of the Turk. It wasn't the fuzzy wuzzy, it was not the word he used, it was a word, it was a word I'd never seen before, but that was the essence of it. The feeling of the British High Command was, look, yes, the Australians did fairly well in, in the Dardanelles, but it's not as if they were up against serious people. And when they were up against German artillery, that was a fair point, because German artillery was so overwhelming, they and so precise and so far ahead of the Australian artillery, 
that it was hell on earth for the Australians in the Western Front and they almost looked back upon Gallipoli with some nostalgia. And yet, I mean, we lost 46,000 killed on the Western Front. That makes the 9,000 lost at Gallipoli pale into insignificance. And yet Gallipoli is writ so large in the Australian psyche. I think if you asked most Australians, if you tapped Australians, most Australians for their military knowledge, 90% of it would start and finish at Gallipoli and 90% of that 90% would start on the first day. I mean, there's a romance about that first day, the landing, the fighting, the holding on, the climbing of the cliffs. I mean, it is it is a cracking tale, under the moonlight, hitting the crunchy beach, you know, finding they were on the wrong spot, coming under fire from on top, and yet, you know, for me, the Western Front, I'm now into the Western Front, I get why people also get obsessed by that. It, it is an amazing tale I'm on the council of the Australian War Memorial and our equivalent, of course, of your Imperial War Museum, which I greatly admire, and we had Paul Keating, our erstwhile Prime Minister, and he made a very controversial speech at the War Memorial on the 11th of November two years ago, which is to say 14 months ago, where he said that the First World War, the Great War, was European tribalism run amok. And I'm now paraphrasing, but he said basically there was no moral clarity to that war, you know, looking back upon it, when you go to the Second World War, there's a, there's great moral clarity. There's clear clarity because you've got the Holocaust on one side. Show me the Holocaust, I'll show you evil. So whoever's fighting on the other side must be, you know, fighting for good, and that's a, that's a reasonable point. But in that in that first great war, you know, it was European tribalism, and Keating's point was Australia should have had no part of it, and yet. The fact that we did have a part of it basically did help form the consciousness of a nation. And um, you talked earlier about the views that some of the British commanders had of the Turkish soldiers. What did the Australians who were fighting them think of the Turks? Well, early on, early on, they had huge disdain for them, you know, because our blokes were fairly rough and when they were in Cairo, when they were in the red light district, if there was a blue about the price of beer or, you know, anything like that and they lifted a hand to one of the Egyptians, there was, you know, a certain, I say this with respect to the Egyptian people of the time, but there was a certain cowering perhaps might be the right gentle word to use. There was little resistance, there's little record of the Egyptian men taking on the burly Australians or the burly Brits and I think our blokes felt there was a strong sense, I mean, as, as that line from Churchill, which was, we'll wave the Union Jack in the Sea of Mamara, they'll throw their hands in the air. And, and the Australians had a similar view that just let us out these Turks, we'll sort them out. And yet the Turks, even though the Ottoman Empire was absolutely on its knees, it was nevertheless a nation, uh, well, it was nevertheless an empire that had 400 years of martial tradition. They knew what they were doing. They believed in their cause. They were fighting for their own land. They were motivated. They were brave. They were courageous. They had a very strong military structure and they fought really hard. And the Australians, the, the story I most love in the whole book is on the 24th of May after one month of shooting each other. And the irony of what happened in Gallipoli is the whole point of the Dardanelles was to get away from trench warfare. What happened in the Dardanelles? Trench warfare exactly the same dynamic that had been taking place in France and into Belgium 
exactly that dynamic was the same thing. When you've got a machine gun and I've got a machine gun, the only way you and I can be in proximity to each other and still be fighting is for both of us to dig. And if I want to outflank you, I'll dig to the left. You've got to stop me, you dig to the right. So I'll dig to the right, you dig to the left. Exactly the same thing happened. And after one month, no man's land in the Dardanelles and Anzac Cove was filled with stinking dead bodies. And a truce was arranged and they came up, I think it was 8 a.m., both sides came up waving flags and the Turks and the Australians walk towards each other and they meet in the middle of no man's land and they start to talk. And some of the Turks could speak, a lot of them could speak bad French, few of them could speak English, but they had one particular question to the Australians, which was, who, who, who are you? What are you doing here? And the Australians are explaining, you know, we're from Australia. Yes, we know that. Looked it up in the atlas. But, you know, why are you here? And they, them explaining, well, part of the British Empire. And the Turks had a respect for the Australians because they knew the punishment that the Australians had taken and still held on. And the Australians had a respect for the Turks because they knew the way they kept charging onto their guns was extremely courageous, extremely brave. And from that moment on, there was empathy between the two sides. And again, I've got a story in the book that after the end of that day, they go back to their trenches and three days later, something thumps in front of the Australian trenches and for the first time doesn't explode. And they look, what is it? It's a package. They throw out a grappling hook, pull it in, open it up, and there's a note, and it says, Anot ero onami, to our heroic enemies. And it's a present. They open it up. What is it? It's Turkish cigarettes. So our blokes smoke it. Pretty good. Much better than those camel dung cigarettes from Cairo. What have we got to give them? So they wrap up the only thing they've got, which is cans of bully beef, some dating to the Boer War reputedly. They throw it over to the Turks, and a minute later it comes back, the same bully beef comes back with a note, no more bully beef. <laughs> And so, look, I, I'm a Republican in, a, in Australia. I'm a very strong Republican. And I was at a Republican lunch for May of this year and the, our guest speaker was the former Prime Minister, Bob Hawke. I was sitting next to him. I said, what's your best, most moving time in your Prime Ministership? And he said it was the 75th anniversary of the Gallipoli landing in 1990. They flew back 53 diggers, most of whom were 90 or 95 years old. As they get there, who should pull up but... 100 hundred odd Turkish soldiers of the same vintage. And these two groups of very old men walked towards each other across the same no man's land that they had first met 75 years earlier. And our blokes put out their hand, bygones be bygones, not good enough for the Turks. The Turks pushed away the Australian's hand and they went the grope. They came in and they gave them bear hugs, they kissed them on both cheeks. And there was a, an extraordinary respect between the Turks and between the Australians. And I dare say with the Brits as well. And that, that's quite interesting because, I mean, the Australians and the British had actually invaded their country. So that's quite remarkable that they failed this camaraderie. It's very interesting you use that phrase. And this is an example of my own stunning naivety when I look back upon it. And I, I say that in the introduction. I was raised, like most Australians, I took Gallipoli with my mother's milk. You know, it's what we talked about. Both my parents had served in the Second World War. Dad had been at El Alamein and Dad had been in New Guinea. My mother was a physiotherapist for the Army, helped put back together veterans in North Africa and veterans at uh, Kokoda. But I wasn't interested because they hadn't been at Gallipoli. And, I, and, and that's how I studied at school. I studied at university. It's in my bones. And it was part of the Australian birthright, Gallipoli. And yet in 1999, I was 
listening to ABC radio and an historian like you said, use those words, said da-da-da-da-da when Australia invaded Gallipoli, invaded Turkey. And I just about ran off the road. I was like, what? Yeah, what? Invaded? Such an ugly word. This is Gallipoli. And then, you know, thinking about it, it was really, I mean, it's an example of, as I say, my naivety of I didn't, we didn't. Australia didn't think of it as an invasion. I mean, I dare say similar to the fact that we still don't think of of uh, our dispossession of the Indigenous people as an invasion, but what else could you call it if you're an Indigenous person and when you see the big ships come? One debate you talk about in the book is about how heroic the Australian troops really were at Gallipoli. What do you have a view on that? Because that's been quite a controversial subject recently. Well, many of them were very, very heroic. Some of them weren't. And I, I wondered, I mean, on that first day, if you go to my epilogue, the your guy, Cecil Aspinall-Oglander, he was on the staff of uh, General Hamilton and he became a historian afterwards and he wrote an account which said that the a fairly strong account saying that a lot of the Australians had run away on that first day which does not fit with our national image and I dare say some of that was true. Of course some of it was true and I dare say I often wondered in writing of that book if I had been in the second or third wave at the Battle of the Neck and I, if you look in the book on the morning of the 7th of August, you've got four waves of Australian soldiers, 150 in each wave, and the first wave is just completely slaughtered. The second wave is completely slaughtered. If I'd been in that third wave, would I have given in to civilian sanity and said, I'm not going to do that. My job is not to give my life for my country. My job is to make some other bastard give his life for his country. Had I landed on the shores of Gallipoli, looked up and seen machine guns coming down at me in shrapnel, would I have given in to civilian sanity and said, I am not going to do that? Well, the truth of it is some Australians, the numbers are disputed, but certainly some Australians gave in to that, gave in and, and refused to do it, just as some Brits, I dare say, did at Cape Hellas. I mean, and yet the, the, the vast majority went forward. And there's a film, The Water Diviner. Well, Russell Crowe, he's produced it, directed it and he's acted in it. And the idea is, and it comes from what happened at Gallipoli. At one point, a brigadier general sees, this is late in the campaign, he sees a fellow and he says, how old are you? And the fellow says, I'm 40, sir. And the the brigadier general says, no, how old are you really? And he says, I'm 60, sir. And he had lost two sons at Gallipoli. He joined up and he'd come to find them, to find their bodies. And... So on the strength of that, Russell Crowe has done a film called The Water Diviner and it's him trying to find the bodies of his boys in Russell Crowe's film after the war is over. And one of the lines of the character, the father, is, this is my fault. I made them think it was the right thing to do to give their lives for their country. You know, And the assertion that some Australians were derelict in their duty on the first day is beyond dispute. Of course there were some Australians that were derelict in their duty on that first day, just as there were some Brits. The only question is how many? Against that, against all of that, you know, the accusations of cowardice, when I go to Gallipoli and I stand on Anzac Cove and I look at that beach and I look up and I think, God help me, how the hell did these bastards hold on for as long as they did for eight months, never having the high ground, never having sufficient supply, never having, you know, as many machine gun bullets, as many men, as much artillery as the Turk, and large, there is no doubt Australia did extraordinarily well, as did the Kiwis, as did the Brits at Cape Hellas, to hold on against overwhelming numbers. Now we're coming up to the centenary. How do you think we should remember the Gallipoli campaign now? 
Well, in Australia, I was on the Anzac Centenary Advisory Board, which was a advisory board of nominally, you know, eminent Australians, etc., of whom I don't number myself, but I was on the board. And I was very strong on the view that we should commemorate, not celebrate this centenary. And when you look at, when I wander through the graveyards and I see the ages of those who died and then I read about the circumstances of their death, I'm very strongly of the view we need to, at the very least, understand their world, understand why they did what they did, what happened. And when I was in France yesterday, my guide, Dr Andrew Thompson, who's a Brit from Kent, he talked to me about a particular memorial the French have done, which he said is fantastic. What they've done is there's a particular part in northern France where I think 300,000 Germans and French and Brits have died. And this particular memorial has all of their names jumbled together, all of them put together, the idea being that even though they were mortal enemies 100 years ago, well, they're lying in the same soil as each other now and this is let us remember them. And I think 100 years on, let us try to, well, that great line from your great poet, lest we forget, let us not celebrate what happened, let's commemorate what happened, understand what happened. That was Peter Fitzsimons. His book, simply entitled Gallipoli, is out now. In the UK, it's published by Bantam Press, and in Australia by William Heinemann. And you can read a written version of this interview in the April issue of BBC History magazine, alongside a companion article where British historian Gary Sheffield explodes some well-known myths of the campaign. Also in our April issue... We have articles on Richard the Lionheart and Saladin, the court of Elizabeth I and medieval immigrants. You can get hold of it now in all good news agents and, of course, digitally. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. 
Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Our next interview is with Irish historian Cormac O'Grada, whose latest book, Eating People is Wrong, is a collection of essays about the history of famine, which, as the title suggests, explores those tragic occasions where people in famines have had to resort to cannibalism. Cormac spoke to our reviews editor, Matt Elton, about some of his findings, and also looked forward to what the future may hold for famine. Well, um, I've been working on famine on and off for uh, most of my career, and um, this book really wasn't planned. It somehow happened. Uh, I, I wrote a, a general short history of famine, uh, a, which appeared in 2009, and I was developing some of the themes in that and uh, developing some new ones. And at a certain point, I thought, well, I have enough material here if I can make it hang together to uh, generate another book. And really, that's how uh, Eating People is Wrong was born. Mm, it's a great title. What do you mean by that? I mean, what does that refer to? Yeah, well... Some people see the connection immediately, and uh, it's really a kind of an ironic uh, echo of uh, the title of a book Malcolm Bradbury wrote back some decades ago, a book of fiction, uh, which with, with the same title, Eating People is Wrong. But the other uh, reference, of course, is to famine cannibalism and uh, the notion that what might be utterly taboo and unacceptable in normal times and which is unimaginable to us, uh, might become almost normal or accepted uh, in times of extreme famine. So the first, the first essay in this book is about famine cannibalism. It's an interesting idea, and you're careful to stress that you're not saying it was widespread by any extent, but you're just saying it was more common than perhaps you would think. Is that right? Absolutely not. So the idea isn't to sensationalize uh, the notion of famine cannibalism, that it was rife. It was exceptional. Uh, I'm sure there were some famines uh, where uh, it did not occur. Uh, but the point is that we have to allow for the fact that this can happen. And what I want to get across is that if we want to understand how horrific famines can be, uh, then, uh, you know, allowing for the possibility of famine cannibalism gets us there. It gets us to that level of understanding. Mm. I mean, are there any specific famines in which you, you found that it happened? Oh, lots, uh, lots, lots. Um, and, you know, the first recorded uh, references to famine cannibalism are the Old Testament. And you wonder, you know, did what is described there literally happen? Or is it some kind of a trope? Is it some kind of a motif uh, to emphasize how disastrous the situation uh, described was? That's always an issue. But we have several 20th century famines where the evidence of for famine cannibalism is uh, incontrovertible. Uh, you know, 
there, there were people uh, shot uh, for um, famine cannibalism in Leningrad during the siege. Uh, there's a lot of evidence uh, from Ukraine in 1932-33. Uh, and again, during the Great Leap uh, Forward Famine in China, um, 1959 to 1961, um, there's a lot of evidence from, uh, you know, from official party archives and in some recent volumes on the Great Leap Famine, people involved, both victims and perpetrators, are named, uh, lots of them. Uh, so there's no denying the fact. Uh, now, you ask me, uh, you know, could I name some famines where uh, famine cannibalism was present? I, I could also probably mention somewhere it didn't happen. As far as I can see, it was not a factor in Bengal. Uh, during the great Bengali famine of World War II in 1942-43, in which uh, two or three million people died. I have not come across any references to famine cannibalism there. And so there may be some cultural aspect to this. Uh, I'm not sure how far one should push that. I'm not a cultural historian. Uh, again, again, during recent African famines, uh, I do not find evidence for famine cannibalism. Although, if you go back to the 19th century and earlier, uh, there are lots of references to famine cannibalism. How how do you go about finding reference to this kind of thing? What sort of sources do you use? Oh, uh, newspaper reports, um, just references in correspondence, in private papers. Um, there's a variety of references, um, you know, and even even in the case of the Great Irish Famine, I've come across a few references which seem to me uh, to be plausible. Uh, again, I think during the Great Irish Famine, uh, cannibalism was absolutely uh, exceptional. But uh, at the same time, uh, it seems to have happened on a few occasions. Mm. You also mentioned that the Great Leap Forward Famine. Yeah. What new impression did you get of that uh, particular instance? Um, well, this, of course, was the greatest famine on record in terms of uh, the numbers who died. Uh, the, the human death toll is um, controversial. Um, and some people, you know, put the number as high as 50 or 60 million. I, I don't believe that at all. But, you know, even 20 or 25 million is still a shocking uh, indictment of uh, the regime at the time. Um, the famine was very uneven regionally and uh, accordingly, of course, the, the instances of famine cannibalism would be uh, most likely to be found in those areas where uh, the famine was at its most intense, particularly in the, in the provinces of Anhui, which is in northern China, and it's in Sichuan in the west. But, um, yeah, I mean, the the great thing about about that famine is that nowadays lots of books have been published about it and um there's a good deal of debate going on in China itself about it, to some extent orchestrated from on high. Uh, whereas immediately in its wake uh, people did not realize it had happened. And if you go through contemporary press reports in, say, the New York Times or the London Times or Time magazine, the sense you get is that um, there were hard times in China, but there's no hint of the absolute uh, catastrophe that we know now was happening at the time. 
You talk a bit in the book as well about the role of government uh, intervention. Um, what's your take on whether it's a helpful or not helpful? Uh, I think that in certain situations, uh, when you get a really bad harvest shortfall uh, and in which uh, you have lots and lots of poor people, um, then the only way in which they're going to survive is through transfers from those who are better off to those who are poor off, uh, who are poorer. And usually those kind of transfers are mediated through public action, through the state. Um, philanthropy, private philanthropy always has a role to play. Uh, but it works only if the famine is over quickly. If you're talking about a famine that lasts for several months or a year or two years, then mass mortality is very likely unless you get, like I say, transfers uh, through government, uh, through providing cash relief, through providing public works, uh, through borrowing in order to import uh, food from abroad and so on. And, and like history has lots of examples where this happened and where it didn't happen and where more of it should have happened. Looking forward, I guess, into the coming decades, uh, what challenges do you think are faced uh, in terms of famine? Do you think climate change is going to play a role? Yes, I, I, I think it may well. I think the prognosis in the near future is hopeful. Uh, the most recent famines we've seen in, well, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, with the exception of Somalia in 2011, 2012, have been very small famines. And we could argue about whether they should be called uh, famines in the first place. I'm thinking of, say, uh, Niger in 2005 or uh, Malawi in 2002. Uh, the numbers dying in those famines uh, were very, very small. And I think that is a, a good sense of what we are likely to see in the future as long as food can get through and as long as civil strife and war does not get in the way. So my immediate... Uh, Historians probably shouldn't uh, engage in forecasting, but I will and I'll say that, you know, for the next 10 or 20 years, the world is rich enough, communications are fast enough, um, there's enough kind of empathy towards uh, potential famine victims for uh, famine crises to be nipped in the bud. Again, as long as uh, there isn't a war going on. Now, if you go further on into the future, then I think global warming is going to become uh, more and more of a problem. And regions which are now at the margin of producing food uh, will become um, uh, unable to produce food. And that is going to, uh, I think, intensify crises and uh, harvest failures uh, with, you know, very serious ramifications. There was an article that came out recently as well about uh, climate change in terms of the Little Ice Age, which I thought we could talk about. Um, am I right in saying that in the article you argued it may not have been as dramatic as has previously been thought? Yeah, you're, you're referring there to work that uh, I d I've done with my colleague Morgan Kelly. And uh, we are, when it comes to the European Little Ice Age, as opposed to some kind of global Little Ice Age, we are on the uh, sceptical uh, side of uh, the argument. Um, we would argue that if you look at the data carefully, the data we have on temperatures going back to the Middle Ages, and you analyze these properly, 
then you cannot reject the notion that uh, you're talking about unchanging climate, about weather which is basically stationary over time. Now, that is not to deny a series of bad years, which could result in very serious famines, as in the uh, late 16th century, the late 17th century, again in the early 14th century. Uh, these are periods of intense famine in Europe, and they're also periods, as far as we can see, of very cold and uh, wet weather, um, or frosty weather. So we're not denying bad weather. What we're denying is uh, the sense that uh, climate took a nosedive at some point in uh, the early modern period and then recovered during the 19th century. Um, heading back to this book, just quickly, uh, what is the thing that most surprised you in the course of researching uh, the various articles in it? Well, I suppose I'd, I'd start uh, where the book starts, and that is uh, on the issue of famine cannibalism. Um, I would have been sceptical at the outset, and uh, I did mention in my work on Ireland, and that's where I began uh, with my interest uh, in, in famine, I would have been sceptical about uh, reports of famine cannibalism. I mentioned them, but then uh, I think... Famine history uh, gains from being comparative, and actually by reading about famines outside of Ireland, that gave me a somewhat different perspective on what might have happened uh, during famines in Ireland. And then I went back and looked for evidence of famine cannibalism in earlier Irish uh, famines, and it, there is such evidence. So I suppose that did uh, open my eyes a little bit. Um, on the, on the Bengal famine, too, uh, on which there is a, a long chapter in the book, uh, I had been interested in that for uh, a long time. But this chapter describes the famine from the perspective of contemporary newspapers. And um, it was very interesting, you know, to follow the course of the famine through uh, day by day in uh, the uh, English language press in Calcutta and to see how at the beginning uh, there is a sense uh, that the government must be supported and that the famine uh, mustn't be highlighted. And then that gives way to exasperation and anger uh, in the middle of, say, the summer of uh, 1943. And uh, there is a shift from being very protective of the government, which after all, is a government which is threatened uh, by the Japanese who are on the border of uh, the, India, the Indian subcontinent there, um, to uh, being very critical uh, of, of the government and of the uh, military for not doing more to help the poor. I found that uh, enthralling and, and, you know, disturbing. This is possibly an impossible question, finally, but what new impression would you like readers to leave this book with of famine and of food, I suppose? Um, I suppose I would like to leave them with the impression that uh, we are, for the, for the time being anyway, uh, on the cusp of seeing famine as something uh, historical, something that we can conquer. And this is a great achievement for um, 
mankind. Because throughout history, uh, famine has been uh, like plague, you know, uh, killing millions and millions of people. And uh, we seem now to have uh, reached a situation where as long as there are, like, again, I'm repeating myself, wars, civil wars, um, or else autarkic dictatorships uh, who get in the way, uh, as long as uh, we have a peacetime environment, famine can be dealt with. Now, malnutrition and hunger are much more serious challenges. Uh, They're much more difficult to deal with, and uh, I I can't see a solution to them in the the, the immediate future. But at least we can be, I think, mildly um, optimistic um, and, um, I suppose, proud of uh, where we have got when it comes to famine. And having an awareness of what's happened in the past will definitely help us with that. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, uh, we just, it's not that long ago. And in Europe, uh, perhaps, you know, there there was a book published um, in the uh, 1970s called The Last Great Subsistence Crisis of the Western World, referring to... uh, a famine which has been described in, in, in the BBC History magazine, indeed, of uh, 1815, 1817. But in fact, Europe's last famine occurred in Moldova as recently as 1946, 1947. And there are examples, there are stories of cannibalism during that famine. So famine, even in Europe, the most developed continent of all, is a relatively recent phenomenon. So we have made fantastic strides uh, in moving from a situation where, you know, famine is in the recent past to one where we can envisage a situation as long as there are no wars when famine is no longer uh, an issue. That was Cormac Agrada. Eating People is Wrong is out now in the UK and the US, published by Princeton University Press. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we'll be discussing medieval universities and artistic friendships. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.